Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at beginning at verse 54. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 54. We continue our series with Jesus, a journey through Lent. You might remember that we began by looking at Nicodemus. Remember the story of Nicodemus? Jesus compared physical birth with spiritual birth. Then we next looked at the story of a woman at a well. She was a Samaritan woman. And Jesus compared physical water with living water. Last week we looked at the story of a man who was born blind. And Jesus compared physical sight with spiritual sight. As Jesus grew in popularity with the people, as he preached, as he shared his parables, the people began to flock to him. And the more miracles he performed, the more excited the people became. And they began to ask the question, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised one? And they began to follow Jesus. Then after Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, became more and more intimidated and more and more threatened by him. You might remember as we've been reading through John that already on a couple occasions they sought to take Jesus' life, but he magically, kind of mysteriously made his escape because his time had not yet come. But now they had made, were making serious plans to take Jesus' life. So to escape their wrath, he flees north to Ephraim, a remote city about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And this is where our story begins today. In John chapter 11, verse 54. The scripture says, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. You see, it was at this time that Jesus' ministry began to become altered in a way. His ministry from public outreach was moved then to a private one. From proclaiming the good news to the multitudes and the healing of many, to sequestering himself with the few, his disciples. In fact, the raising of Lazarus is one of the last miracles that Jesus would perform until his resurrection. Verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. The people who were followers of Christ, the Jewish people as well, they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They would come early because they needed to go through the ceremonial cleaning rituals. They made preparation for this great feast. We know that historically, the Passover, during the Passover, at one point, over 256,000 lambs were sacrificed on one day. It is estimated that the crowd was as large as 2.6 million during the time of Christ. The people who did not live in Jerusalem, they would come from the outward countries, and they would flood into Jerusalem for for this Passover. And so the hills would be packed with campers. There would be makeshift tents, makeshift encampments, as far as the eye could see. Verse 56 tells us that they kept looking for Jesus. You see, there was this sense of excitement. Is he coming? Is the Messiah going to be at the Passover? And they were excited about the fact that this Messiah, they might get to see the one who was performing miracles, who had just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And they stood there in the temple areas and they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? You see, it was early in the week and they were standing there hoping for the coming of the Messiah. No doubt the news had spread that Jesus was going ahead of them to the Passover. I'm sure expectations were running very high. He had performed miraculous healings and now they were hoping to see many of the same. And the crowds were gathering around in anticipation. Jesus had kind of been elevated, if you will, to rock star status. And there was a sense of this excitement, enthusiasm to see the Messiah. There were people who were standing outside the temple courts, just hoping, just hoping maybe, maybe they could get a glimpse of the king of kings. These huge crowds gathered around because they really believed that Jesus was there to deliver them. And so they shouted on that day, save us, save us now. Verse 57, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it to them so they might arrest him. You see, they put a bounty out on his head. They put a a warrant out for his arrest. So we find there we have two groups of people. We have one group of people who are looking to find Jesus because they want to worship him. And we have another group of people who are looking to find Jesus because they want to arrest him. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, the scripture says, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It was Saturday, the week before Jesus would be crucified. And he goes to his friend's house, Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived there in the house with them. And Mary loved Jesus. She really loved Jesus. Matter of fact, Martha sometimes got frustrated because Mary would drop everything just so she could sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from his teaching. Well, on that day, they prepared a great meal and celebrated what Jesus had done in their lives and what God was doing in their lives. And and they just celebrated the fact that they had this relationship together. At the end of the meal, Mary took a bottle of perfume, a jar of pure nard, and she broke it and anointed Jesus. And the fragrance filled the entire house. Verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. You see, when Jesus called Lazarus out from the grave, even though he had been dead for four days, and he said, Lazarus, come out, and he was healed, Lazarus automatically rose to rock star status as well because they wanted to see this man who was raised from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. You see, they could not deny the undeniable. Even though they couldn't explain how Lazarus was raised from the dead, they could not deny that reality. They could not deny the fact that this man who was born blind could now see. Everyone knew him. All of his life he had been blind, but now he could see. 
And because of these miracles, because of Lazarus, because of the teaching of Jesus, many began to follow him. To try to stop them, the Jews decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. Remember that happened with the man who was born blind? And if you were put out of the synagogue, you were excommunicated from the faith. You, you had no economic power. You couldn't buy and sell. You were ostracized from society as they knew it at that time. And yet, even still, many people followed Jesus as well as many Jews. So the chief priests made plans not just to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus. You see, Lazarus was an example of Jesus' power. It was undeniable. He had been dead for four days, and now he was alive. Lazarus created a problem for the chief priests who believed that the dead were not raised. And so instead of dealing with that problem, instead of facing that reality... Let's just kill him along with Jesus. Verse 12. The next day, the great cloud that a great crowd, not cloud, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. By that next morning, people would have gathered around the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. I can imagine that they were looking. They were looking for Jesus. They probably surmised that maybe Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house, and they gathered around that house. And I could see them picking up palm branches, and branches that were a symbol of strength and beauty and salvation and joy. These palm branches were a symbol of victory, military victory. They were often awarded after a conquest. They were also rewarded at the time of the Roman games. And so these, these palm branches symbolized victory and valor. I see them begin to chant. They would have probably chanted Hebrew songs, songs that are found in Psalms 113 through Psalms 118, songs like from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be praised. Familiar songs to them. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at that moment where all of a sudden you got to the peak and you just kind of started to sing? I had one of those experiences. Uh, we went on this wilderness trip, and we went out to this peak, and, and we, the group was tired. It was a 12-day trip. It, the, the task was bigger than they thought it should be, and they were overwhelmed. They had blisters. They made arguments why they shouldn't go up to the top of the peak and made arguments for going up, and we decided to go. And as we got close to the peak after this long trip, difficult, this excitement began to boil up inside of us. You could see it. You could see the peak. You could see finally the goal was to be accomplished. Save us. Save us now. And we just broke out in song. And we sang all the way up the peak. And I imagine as they gathered outside of that Mary and Martha's house, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, People were just picking up branches, and there was this ecstatic excitement. And people began to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was this excitement in that place. Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Verse 13 says it this way. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna was a declaration of praise, a cry for salvation. It literally means save us, save us now. So Jesus began his two-mile journey towards Jerusalem. The crowds crowds would gather around him as he made his journey. And they were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Save us now. Save us from what? Well, save us from Roman oppression. Now, Jesus indeed was coming to save them, but his salvation was far different than what they had expected. You see, we all want a Savior, a Messiah who will bless us. We all want a Savior who will save us. We all want a Savior who will save us Save us, save us, save us, Lord, from our politics. Save us, bless us, bless our nation, Lord. Bless our battles. Put us in charge. Bless our economy. Make our gas prices go down. And our 401ks go up. Save us, save us. Everybody wants a Savior like that. But Jesus isn't that kind of a Messiah. And when we try to make him out that kind of Messiah, we misinterpret why he came and what he came to do. His salvation runs much deeper than our circumstances. He came to be a savior of the world. He came to redeem mankind to himself. Verse 14. The scripture says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey colt. What does Jesus, what does the Bible say that Jesus rode in on? Answer that question for me. What does the Bible say that Jesus rode on? Let's hear it. What does the Bible say Jesus rode on? Oh, man, that is so weak. Let's do it one more time. What does the Bible say that Jesus rode on? Yes, thank you. You know, the donkeys are a symbol of peace and humility. They are beasts of burden, not animals of war. And the riding on a colt of a donkey, Jesus demonstrates what kind of Messiah he is. We see here this purposeful preparation on the part of Jesus to fulfill prophecy. Prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9, where the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey. While a donkey, a colt is not a sign of, while a donkey colt is not a sign of honor, these animals were considered as noble beasts. If a king were coming to a city to make war, he would come riding in a horse. 
a white horse most likely. However, Jesus comes in peace. And he comes riding on the colt of a donkey. He came to reveal himself to mankind. To reveal himself to you and to me. To conquer sin for you and for me. He was going to conquer death, hell, and the grave, but doing so, he would do so in peace and humility and love. Jesus came riding on a colt, not a horse. Frederick Nietzsche, one of the founders of modern existentialism, argued that the basic motivation behind all human behavior is the will to power. Now, I don't agree with Frederick Nietzsche, but for many people, this is true. Their basic motivation is the will to power. I'm kind of that way. I mean, I'm very competitive. I like to win. As a young teenager, I would only play in sports that I could win. (laughs) That's why I never played basketball very much. I, I like to play king of the hill. We played a little bit different, differently than most. We had, uh, I had a lot of cousins. We were all about the same age, and, and uh, we would play on a picnic table. Whoever survived on the picnic table was king of the hill. <laughs> and because of my uncanny sense of balance, I often won. I was king of the picnic table. But I learned that my brother, who was three years older than me and is 6'1", and I wore slim and he wore huskies, that size always trumped an uncanny sense of balance. (laughs) And so power, he had the power more so than I did. But we struggle, don't we, with this issue of power over love. King of the hill. We say things like shotgun. Our king and queen of the remote. Our marriages struggle because of this issue of power. Whose money is it anyway? And this idea of submitting to one another in love is lost. Because our drive for power. Sociologist Willard Waller said this. He was a, a, a great sociologist that taught a lot about teaching I don't know if he's great, but he he was one of the early sociologists, taught a lot about teaching. And and he had his his own marriage fell apart, and his parents' marriage struggled. And so he wrestled with this whole issue, and after a lot of research, came up with this quote. He said that marriages disintegrate because people are more interested in playing power games than they are in playing love games. In any relationship, as power increases... Love decreases. You see, if I'm going to help my wife become all that God has created her to be, it's my responsibility to encourage her, to lift her up, to help her to become all that she has created me to be. And if I'm going to become all that God has created me to be, I need my wife to encourage me, to respect me, to support me. You see, it's not about who has the power. It's about submitting to one another in love. You see, when we begin to get a grip, a grasp of what Jesus did on riding on a colt, it begins to transform our thinking. 
our understanding of humanity, our purpose in life. When you ask the question, who's going to be the master? Who's going to have the power? Who's going to be in charge around here? You're asking the same question that James and John asked of Jesus when he said, who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left? In other words, who's going to have all the power? And the ten disciples, the other ten, they became very angry about this. Why? Because they wanted the power too. And Jesus corrals them together. He says, haven't you been with me long enough? Don't you get it yet? If you understood my kingdom, if you understood who I am and what I'm about, you wouldn't have even asked this question. Because in my kingdom, those who would be first are voluntarily last. And those who are last are first. Those with the most power in my kingdom are servants. Mark 10.44 says it this way. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus began this two-mile journey towards Jerusalem. The people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, save us. And Jesus comes as a ransom for many, for you, for me. When Ryan and I, uh, we used, when he was growing up, we used to wrestle a lot. Uh, I, I had our house built, and I picked out a model that where we had a great room because I wanted lots of space. I wanted all my family in there. I wanted to be able to have room so that we, no family room, no, no place for escape. We're together. <laughs> And Ryan loved to wrestle with me. We'd wrestle while he got older. By his junior year, he started lifting and getting stronger and stronger. It was harder for me to beat him and say, come on, Dad, let's wrestle. And I had to hurt him to win. And I always felt a little bit guilty, you know, because fathers really shouldn't hurt their sons. <laughs> but I didn't want to lose. And so, you know, he said, come on, Dad, let's win. No, Ryan, I don't want to, I don't want to wrestle you because if I wrestle you, then I'll hurt you to win and I don't want to hurt you. Come on, Dad, let's wrestle. I said, Ryan, I'm not wrestling you anymore. I'm staying on the couch. He would literally drag me off the couch and get me on the ground. And I would, I would get in a position, a kind of a defensive position, so he couldn't move me. And, uh, and, but eventually he would get enough, his head in there, and start going under my arms and push me hard enough and hurt me enough that, that he would eventually get me to wrestle. And the only way I could win was to hurt him. <laughs> Well, by the end of the junior year, Ryan could beat me on a regular basis. He was strong. He was scrappy. And in that moment, I realized Ryan had a decision to make. You see, I could force my will upon him, but now he was physically stronger than me. Or he could choose to love and respect me. Fortunately, he chose the latter. You see, because I invested my life in him, because I loved him, because he knew I had his best interest in heart, and he was always a little bit scared of me anyway, he respected me. He respected my authority. I'm talking here about an authority that comes through sacrificial love. 
I'm talking about Jesus who understood that as power decreases, love increases. You see, Jesus came riding on a, on a donkey, a colt of a donkey. Think about this. Jesus set aside infinite power so that he could express infinite love to you, to me. Jesus came to us as a baby who couldn't speak. He couldn't eat solid food. He was totally dependent upon a teenage girl and her husband, Joseph, for shelter, for food, for love. Throughout Jesus' life, he taught us that as love increases, power decreases. In my kingdom, the last are first. And so the king of kings comes to us riding on a donkey. Not as a sign of weakness, but as an expression of his love for you and for me. You see, he was a different kind of king. He was not the kind of king that we thought of. But I'm afraid here's what I've discovered over the years. You see, it's much easier for us to celebrate the Jesus we want than to follow the Jesus who is. Think about that. It's much easier for us to celebrate the Jesus we want. Save us, save us now than to follow the Jesus who is. Who calls us to a life like his own. Where we serve. Where we don't push ourselves to the top and push ourselves away from the presence of God. But we live our lives in humility. Not on a horse, but on a donkey. But you see, the people were looking for a king. That would save them. That is why a week later at the same group of people who were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Because Jesus was not the king they expected. He came on a donkey. Jesus' victory here would be that he would deliver us from sin. That's the triumph in the triumphal Victory. There was a victory that was won, but it was won not through power, but it was won through peace. He came to us riding on a donkey. He could have come on a horse, a white horse, leading a powerful army, forcing the world to bend their knee, and yet he didn't. Why not? Why didn't he force mankind to obey? You see, God's purpose was not to defeat us, but his purpose was to transform us. God's purpose was not to defeat his people, but to transform his people. See, only love can change someone's heart. I can make you do what I want you to do. As a youth pastor, I learned very early that I had the authority that I could say, this is what we're doing, this is how it's going to be done. But I could tell a student to sit down, and they might sit down on the outside, but they would stand up on the inside. I could not demand compliance. 
But I also learned through years of experience. I didn't know this in the beginning. I learned it over time. That as I invested in students' lives, as I loved them, as they knew that that love was given freely, and I didn't do it right all the time. There were many mistakes along the way, I'm sure. But they knew that I wanted the best for them. And when I asked them to sit down, they would do it, not because they had to, but because they chose to. You see, we can force our will upon people. But only love can transform a heart. See, God is able to accomplish more in our weakness than he can through our power. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. That's what the triumphal entry teaches us. What makes us most like Christ is not our ability to control, but our willingness to love. Years ago, my fresh, between my freshman and sophomore year, I'm going to ask Pastor Edgar to come and help me with this. I'm going to sing a song in a moment. But between my freshman and sophomore year, there was a, a man by the name of Bill T. I'll call him Bill T. He was hiding in a dumpster at our church. He was a drug addict. He was 10 years older than me. Older than me. I was 18, 19 years of age. He was 28, 29 years of age. And he was making this racket in the church dumpster. He was addicted to drugs, and he was a seller of drugs. His brother attended our church, and we'd been praying for Bill T. He was involved in our college group. Well, it was the children's pastor who saw this racket, and she called the police, and they came and arrested Bill T. And they got him out of the dumpster, and they took him to the police department, and they arrested him. Well, she called us to say, um, I don't want you to come to the house tonight after bowling. We were gathering together to go bowling. and I don't want you to come to the house because uh, this has happened. Well, she was a single gal doing children's ministry in our church, our pastor of children's ministry. And so we went to Susie's house because we wanted to be there to protect her in case Bill T. came to the house. And while we were there, we began to pray for Bill T., And while we were praying, the Holy Spirit said to us, pray that Bill comes to the house. And we began to pray, Lord, bring Bill to the house. I'd already called my brother who was on the police department. He said he's been released. He paid his bail. Be careful. And we prayed he'd come. And as we were praying, we heard this pounding on the door. Susie opens the door and Bill burst in. He's this big guy, about 6'3". And he begins to yell. Yelling at Susie. And he points his finger at Susie. He says, have you ever done drugs? Susie says, no, I've never done drugs. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. And Susie said, you know, Bill, I, I know I don't know what you're going through. But Jesus does. And Jesus cares. And we talked a little more that evening, and and we didn't know what else to say, so we just began to pray. And as we began to pray, the Holy Spirit just swept through that room in a powerful way. And it scared scared Bill, and he darted out of the house. But we didn't know what to do, and so we decided we would just spend the night there at Susie's house. And we prayed that, 
Lord, would you bring Bill back to the house? We went looking for him. We couldn't find him. And finally, about three in the morning, there's this light tapping on the door. We all get up and go to the door. And Susie invites Bill in. And Susie puts her hands on Bill's shoulders. Says, Bill, we've been praying that you would come. You're welcome here. And as she said, you're welcome here, I could see the fear, the anger, the stress just melt away. That week, we spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with Bill as he began the process of going off the drugs. He accepted Christ and went through rehab. And and we were there with Bill all through the next several years. And God changed his life. And I often thought, where would Bill be today? If Susie hadn't extended her hands of grace and said, you're welcome here. You know what, folks? We're called to make a difference for the kingdom. Not in power, but in weakness. You see, today we celebrate a king who is our prince of peace. We worship a God who laid down infinite power to express infinite love for you and for me. Let's do the same. Let's love our world. Not with force, but with the grace of God. Let's celebrate this morning the risen risen King. But let's celebrate this morning the Messiah who came and sacrificed his life. And people were cheering. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us now. And even though he knew he would give his life for the ransom of many. He changed our whole way of thinking. Let's sing, stand and sing together.